democracies usually don't collapse in normal times. They collapse in emergencies because people imagine wrongly that in an emergency, dictatorships work better. Yuval Noah Harari is not concerned with light questions. The Israeli historian, philosopher, and professor was once focused on medieval history until he took on a bigger subject, the history of humanity. His book, Sapiens, was an international bestseller. Now he has a global stage, addressing leaders in politics and tech with his takes on the future. Maybe you trust the present government with this emergency measure or with this surveillance system. Biotechnology, artificial intelligence, your smartwatch, surveillance. These are the topics that concern him. And now they're all converging with the novel coronavirus. Think about the politician in your country you are most afraid of. What happens if this politician is prime minister or president in four years or eight years and they are in charge of the system? When you step back from the daily death tolls and the politicians' briefings, a wider picture is coming into view. In country after country where Al Jazeera is covering the pandemic, we've seen how many governments are finding a path out of lockdown through contact tracing and surveillance. And in many places, there's a fear that this pandemic might transform more than just the world's economy or its borders. This could be the moment when many countries take a giant leap, trading away privacy for safety on a new scale. The question is, how aware are we of the trade-off we're making? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. So we're here today to talk about surveillance in the time of coronavirus, which you are uniquely qualified to talk about based on your research and your work. Set the scene for me in terms of what we're currently seeing when it comes to surveillance as a response to COVID-19. What we see generally, I would say, are two things. First of all, the spread of surveillance systems to more and more countries, including democratic countries, which previously refused to institute any kind of mass surveillance system. And secondly, we are seeing a change in the nature of surveillance from over-the-skin surveillance to under-the-skin surveillance. Over the skin is things that I do, where I go, who I meet, what I watch on television. And we know that for years, corporations and governments have been developing the abilities, the technological tools to monitor what we do. And this gives them a lot of insight about our political views, about our preferences, even about our personality. But what's happening now is that surveillance begins to go under the skin. Not just what you do, but also how you feel. Just face the video camera and it can detect your heart rate and blood pressure. Yeah, so it's actually That's an EKG machine in a wristband that you put on an Apple Watch. 
Tech companies are introducing products that promise to help users keep a constant eye on their health, including blood pressure, glucose levels, and heart problems. This could be a game changer for medical care, ATM security, and even police interrogation. There have to be some privacy or security concerns about all this data. At present, it is, of course, focused on the disease itself. In order to know whether you are sick, the system needs data about what's happening inside your body to know whether you have COVID-19 or not. But once surveillance goes under the skin, it can start being used for many, many other purposes. You know, if, if, if you watch this interview and somebody just knows that you're watching, it gives some clue about your political views or personality, but just a little. If they can actually go under the skin, like you are watching this, and at the same time, the TV is watching you, or there is a biometric bracelet on your hand, which constantly measures your body temperature, your blood pressure, your heart rate, they can know not only that you're watching, but also what you're feeling. What makes you angry? What makes you laugh? If you agree with me, if you think I'm crazy, if you are bored and you try to switch to another channel. And the implications of that are extreme. It can go all the way to the establishment of new totalitarian regimes, worse than anything we've seen before, and also to huge revolutions in the job market, in the economy, in personal relations. Do you see a world where tech is used to determine and then classify people's health and immunity in in a post-pandemic society? And is there a danger to that? Yeah, we could be on a path to people being increasingly classified according to their medical data. So it's not inevitable. It depends on our political decisions. But there is a path, dangerous path, that starts with classifying you whether you already immune to COVID-19 or not, And then you can add many more categories to to, to that list. And we might already be seeing a prototype of that system. One of the ideas that's been floated and even started to be implemented is the idea of immunity passports. So that people who've had COVID-19 or who test negative can be identified so they can move about freely. Professor Harari says we need to be extremely careful about going further. Yes, we need this kind of system to stop the epidemic. But if we go too far, we might face new kinds of discrimination in the workplace, in school, in society. This is why it's so important that whatever medical information is being gathered, it's being used in an anonymous way to research the, the disease and to develop new medicines and so forth, but it is not freely shared with companies and with insurance agencies and, and, and government departments that can then use it to all kinds of other purposes. So there's been talk of mandatory contact tracing as an app used as a precondition before people are allowed to walk around. And of course, one can see the benefit of that in trying to stop the spread of COVID-19. How does that make you feel? Well, I'm not against surveillance itself. 
I think certainly in this epidemic, we need to make use of whatever technology is available to fight the epidemic and to ease the economic crisis. And certainly surveillance can help us do that. And for example, help us ease the lockdown and allow people to go back to work, to school, to university much earlier than if we didn't have this technology. So I'm definitely in favor of that, but it should be done carefully. And there are several guidelines that we can think about in this respect. First of all, yes, we need to monitor people if they are sick. But if you want to monitor people, establish an independent agency, which is tasked just with stopping the epidemic and doesn't share the data it collects with anybody else. Not with the police, not with your boss, not with your insurance agency. Now, this all may sound a little bit Orwellian. These suggestions from Professor Harari for the short term might be able to alleviate some of those concerns. But he's also concerned about the long-term implications, which he says are already apparent in the language world leaders are using. A lot of people, including politicians, are saying things like, this is a war. We must act like any wartime government and do whatever it takes to support our economy. This is, in effect, a government on a wartime footing. Actually, I'm a wartime president. This is a war. This is a war. Different kind of a war that we've ever had. And in a war, of course, we need to involve the security services. But this is a complete mistake. This is not a war. This is a healthcare crisis. It's not about soldiers with guns running around. It's about nurses in hospitals changing dirty bedsheets. We don't need experts in killing people. We need experts in taking care of people. So if you want to put somebody in charge, put a nurse in charge, not a soldier or a general. And even better, there are ways not to put anybody in charge. There are techniques that, you know, my smartphone can talk directly with the smartphones of the people around me. And if afterwards it turns out that one of them is testing positive for COVID-19, the smartphones just alert the other smartphones. It doesn't go through a central authority. It's not perfect, but it's something that we need to know. And the other thing is, once you increase surveillance, monitoring of citizens, you must always balance it by, at the same time, increasing surveillance of the government or of the big corporations. Do you ever see that happening? I hope to see it happening. You know, governments are now handing out money like water, As a citizen, I want this to be monitored. Who is making the decisions and where does the money go? Does it go to help some big corporation whose managers are friends with a minister or does it go to help small businesses? And if the government says, no, 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 it's too complicated to track all these decisions and payments, well, if it's not too complicated to monitor me, then it's not too complicated to monitor you. It's the same technology. Professor Harari's criticism is global, but he's also turned it on his own government, in Israel. During the beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak, Israel was also in the midst of a political crisis, yet another inconclusive election where no party won a majority. Benjamin Netanyahu, 
the prime minister, responded in ways that some, including Harari, called authoritarian. The country's caretaker prime minister and his party have been accused of using the crisis to hold on to power after inconclusive elections. By shutting down the court system, Netanyahu has effectively postponed his own corruption trial. Netanyahu is also under fire from anti-surveillance activists for approving emergency spy powers to stop the spread of the coronavirus. Netanyahu's close ally suspended parliament. The government also activated a security service database that was previously unknown to the public in order to retroactively trace people's movements through their phones and other data. Ultimately, the suspension of parliament was lifted. Despite some legal wrangling, the surveillance was not. You know, some people have been saying it for years about the occupation that you wait and see. The kind of things, the kind of systems being developed to control the Palestinians in the occupied territories, eventually they will be turned against Israeli citizens too. And unfortunately, this is now happening to some extent. Of course, the declared purpose and the immediate purpose is to fight the epidemic. But we know, especially in Israel, that measures taken in an emergency have this nasty tendency to long outlast the emergency. In many cases, it's easy to introduce the emergency measures to build the system, very difficult afterwards to dismantle it. There is always a new emergency on the horizon. So whatever systems you establish now, whatever measures you adopt now, think of it long term. Are there any countries, democracies or otherwise, that are, in your view, using surveillance tech well when it comes to this pandemic? Is it even possible to use surveillance tech well? I don't have the data in order to, to answer the question. Much of it is, is not available. It hasn't been collected or it's classified. So it's very difficult for me to say. We do see, of course, that some countries are tackling this epidemic much better than others. The line of division is not necessarily between democracies and dictatorships. Again, many people say that China has dealt with the crisis very well, at least after it, it erupted. There is a huge debate about whether the initial stages of the epidemic, if in a democratic system with an open press and the free flow of information, whether this epidemic could have been discovered and stopped much earlier. But certainly after the epidemic exploded, then China dealt with it much better than, let's say, the United States. But you see them, other democratic countries which have dealt with the pandemic better than the U.S. and even better than China. According to many measures, South Korea, Taiwan, New Zealand, Greece dealt with the epidemic in a very effective way without giving up the checks and balances of the, of the democratic system. I would say that, you know, every country is in a somewhat different situation. It's a different geography, it's a different culture, economic situation, and, and so forth. So I don't think that we should put one country on a pedestal and say, okay, this is the perfect model, now everybody do exactly what this country has done. The best thing is to look at many countries and learn both from their successes and from their mistakes. And for this, of course, we need good cooperation between countries that they are willing to share information, not just information about the number of people sick and dead, but also about mental situation of the population and economic situation. And for this, we need trust. 
We need countries to be willing to share this, and we need other countries to believe them. That's why it's so important to have organizations like the World Health Organization to gather the information, analyze it, check it, and disseminate it. And then each country would be able to adopt the ideal policy for its unique conditions. We live in a world now where a great many of us, myself included, are seemingly willing to give our data, our health, and otherwise away to private companies. We trade privacy for utility. You mentioned biometric bracelets. I'm, I'm wearing a smart watch right now that does the things you mentioned. It is tracking my heart rate. It is tracking, you know, calories, water intake. Does the merging of tech and health data worry you even if there is an independent body? Because should we be trusting private companies? or should we be trusting anyone with this information? Well, it depends how it's being used. We don't have to choose between health and privacy. We have models for how you can have both. For instance, even today, when I go to my personal doctor, I share a lot of very private data, sometimes data that I don't want even my family to know. And I can trust my doctor that they have only my interests in mind and then that they will use the data to provide me with the best healthcare services, the best advice, without telling uh, the police or my boss or even my spouse what I told them in confidence. And this, this works. But if you start sharing your data with somebody whose interests are not aligned with you, they have different political or commercial interests, then, then it could become very dangerous. The point Professor Harari is making is that the choice between health and privacy, he says, is a false one. There are ways to bake privacy into the system. It's not kind of a prophecy of a dystopian future that is coming no matter what. It can happen, but it's not inevitable. The most important thing to realize about all these technological inventions is that technology is never deterministic. It always depends to some extent on politics, on our decisions. If you today look at North Korea and South Korea, they have access to the same technology. They just choose to use it differently. And it will be the same with the new technologies like all these monitoring devices. The question is what political decisions we are taking about how to use them. And that's where Professor Harari leaves his warning. It's up to us to decide. But who is us exactly? Is it the tech companies who collect all this data? The governments and international organizations who've done little to regulate? For Harari, it's up to the public to demand systemic change. That can feel pretty daunting. But with all the threats looming, Harari chooses to see them in the light of the past. I think we have to be realistic about humanity and about human nature. We are not perfectly good, we are not perfectly bad. Originally, I specialized in the Middle Ages, so I know that things were much, much worse in the past. And this gives us hope that, you know, I'm not saying that in order to be complacent, that look, everything is perfect, we don't have to worry. It's far from perfect, of course, but, you know, during the Black Death in the 14th century, people were dying in their millions, and nobody had any idea what was killing them and what could be done about it. Now, with coronavirus, it took only two weeks to identify the virus causing the disease, sequence its entire genome, 
and develop reliable testing kits. My main fear is not from the viruses, it's from the humans, or more correctly, from the inner demons of humanity, from hatred and greed and ignorance. If people react to this by developing their hatred, blaming foreigners, blaming minorities, if we fall into this trap of hatred, it will be much more difficult to deal with this crisis. And also if we fall into the trap of greed, if corporations just see this as an opportunity to increase their profits instead of being generous and thinking about the condition of the people who really suffer from it. So I hope that we react to this crisis not with hatred and greed, but with global solidarity and with generosity. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke and Stacey Samuel, our executive producer, with Ney Alvarez, Amy Walters, Priyanka Tilve, Dina Kispe, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is the engagement producer. Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. If you want more of my interview with Professor Harari, check out Start Here. It's Al Jazeera's video explainer series. And there's a whole episode dedicated to surveillance in the time of coronavirus. Check it out on aljazeera.com.